Well, today's message is called A Holy Temple in the Lord. And today's Bible reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 to 22. When you have that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians, the second chapter. And we're going to be examining verses 17 to 22. Hear all ye this morning the word of the Lord. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated. Gracious Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and begging and pleading by the name and blood of Jesus that you would fill us with your most precious Holy Spirit to be able to discern thy good and perfect word, to receive that which is from thy good and bountiful hand, even the word of truth. Lord God, help us in this morning to recognize who we are in Jesus and what it is that you are constructing and building throughout the ages even as we ourselves being living in, uh, living members and stones of this structure that you are building. Lord, help us to see our place in your divine economy and in your divine plan. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I have great news for you. And it's this, that Jesus Christ has come into the world. He lived the life that you could not live. He was holy, perfect, blameless in every way. Unlike us, who the scripture says of our condition, we are children of wrath. We have fallen from a state of grace. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there is good news in that there is another who has come, and his name is Jesus, living again the life that you and I could not live, dying the death that we all deserve. He died next to two criminals on a cross, dying as if he were a sinner, yet was without sin, the scripture says. We also see part of this good news is that this Jesus, though he died, he did not stay dead, but instead on the third day, he rose again, triumphing over death, sin, and Hades. We also see in this good news narrative that through faith, he has saved a people unto himself by means of his grace. And that what God is accomplishing in and through the people of God, through his elect, is that God is building a new community, a new people, a new temple even. We see in this marvelous word from Ephesians chapter 2, again, if you look at verse 17 with me, it says, and he came, this is Jesus he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
If you're following along in today's teaching and insert in the bulletin, I want you to write this in there. Jesus came and preached what? Peace. Brothers and sisters, there's peace. I, I don't know about you. I don't know about your week too much, and, and I don't know about what's maybe going on in your life and maybe some of the things that you're hiding, but I know for a, a truth and a reality that we all need to acknowledge this morning is that we need peace. We need peace. We live in a world that's so divided. We live in a world that's so uh, uh, in need of, of, in desperate need of peace. You turn on the news and you look at the news stories that are just a constant barrage of bad news. Conflict in the Ukraine, conflict with Russia, conflict in, in this nation with people groups not agreeing or seeing eye to eye. We see in the news narratives even, uh, it's always bad news, more inflation, more concern, economy is in decline, all these things, and it could make a person go mad. And we are in desperate need, not only peace amongst our neighbors, peace amongst in our political systems, and peace amongst nations, but we need peace internally with God. We are in desperate need of peace. And the good news is that Jesus came and he has come and proclaimed peace to you. Peace to you who are far off and also peace to those who were near. Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far. And this is a, a clear reference as we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We see in verses 11 through 16, Paul begins to distinguish uh, the Jews and the Gentiles throughout redemptive history. That God had chosen a distinct people for his name in the old covenant. Through Abraham, he chose the nation of Israel to be his representative on earth. To be his unique people for his own possession. And then he, 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 he then begins to work through Israel to redeem the nations. But Israel fell short of that divine command. And instead, the full gospel falls on the shoulders of one person, Jesus Christ. And through the ministry of Jesus, he is able to bring both Jews and Gentiles near by the shed blood of his cross. And that's good news. I think we fail because we're so far removed and maybe I'm not sure if you know too many uh, uh, Jewish people today or if you have any, ever lived uh, outside of, of, of this country uh, where there's uh, two people groups that are predominant and at odds of each other. But the, the reality of the first century is that the Gentiles and Jews, they were not friends. Have you ever read in, in, this, in Scripture the story of the Good Samaritan? You know why that story is so countercultural? Why the story of the Good Samaritan is so powerful? Is because you have two peoples, a Samaritan and a Jew, serving, being kind, being neighborly, though there was great conflict between those two peoples. And it was even truer in general with the Gentiles and the Jewish people at large. Two people groups who could not get along, who were in conflict, whose very ideologies and religions were pit against each other. The pagans saw the Jewish religion as, a, uh, uh, as inadequate, as you only have one God. We have several gods. We have a pantheon of gods. 
And, of course, the Jewish religion saw the Gentile paganism as an affront to the true God and as a superstition. And they could not see eye to eye yet in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 13 of Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, referring to the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. There's that word again. Peace. He is our peace who has made us both one. So out of the two, Jew and Gentile, God makes one new and glorious people. He's building something. He's constructing something. And he does so by breaking down the wall of hostility, the scripture says. The dividing wall of hostility in verse 15 says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. So making peace. Again, we live in a world that is just bursting at the seams with ideological, philosophical, economical, even religious and spiritual divisions. The need for peace in a divided world is greater now than probably at any other time in history. And we see that God is the only one who has a trustworthy track record of bringing together warring factions and making peace. You know, we're not too far from election season where candidates will come from several parties and they'll begin to say, I'm the right candidate, I'm the right person because of X, Y, and Z, because look at at my track record, look at what I've accomplished, look what I've done, look what I've brought to the table. Can I tell you that every politician, every leader of this world and age falls short in in comparison to the excellencies of Jesus to bring peace. Because ultimately the purpose, or at least what should be the purpose of politics, is the pursuit of peace. Peace with with our fellow man and peace with, with our neighboring nations. But all nations will fall short of this endeavor Because there's only one who can bring true and lasting peace. And he he is himself the Prince of Peace, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Jesus Christ alone has this trustworthy track record of bringing people together. Because he's been doing it since his, his hands were stretched out on that cross. And he brought together in his flesh, out of two warring factions, Jews and Gentiles, he made them one. He made them one. When we look around even this church of ours, we see a living testimony of the reality of the gospel to bring people together. The reality of Christ shed blood, making peace between different people groups, age groups, economic, social backgrounds. All of us can come together under the same roof, under the same lordship of Jesus, and worship the same and living God. Hallelujah. Praise God. There's a testimony I want to share with you briefly. About 60 years ago, there was a uh, missionary family that was sent to a far-off people group in the Indonesian islands. And this people group that existed there were indigenous. Some people would call them barbaric. They were, in fact, headhunters people who were uh, cannibalistic. 
And this missionary family went to try to infiltrate, try to share the gospel, bring the good news of Jesus to this people group with no success. And in fact, in that people group that they were trying to reach, there were two factions of that same people group that were at odds of each other, that were fighting each other, that were uh, uh, constantly warring against each other. And the two people, and this is the story of the Sawi people, maybe you've heard of this story before. Again, this tribal conflict in western New Guinea, Indonesia. And what they did in order to bring about peace between these two warring factions is that the tribal leaders came together from one faction from the other. They came together and they, they made a negotiation. They said, we will offer to you our next born child in exchange for your child that will be born. And so when the two children were born, the two tribes met and they passed each other's children to the other tribe. That way, now the bloodlines are crossing. And no longer can we war with the other side because that's family. No longer can we hate the other side because that's our blood in their camp. And this was known as the peace child. Friends, through the peace child that they offered each other, they found peace. Sixty years later, and actually through that offering of the peace child, the missionary saw the perfect opportunity to come forth and to preach the gospel of God's peace child, Jesus Christ. That God himself brought forth his peace child into the world through the person of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is the one who, who brings two warring factions together and makes peace by his blood. And Jesus Christ was made known and great in that island nation. Sixty years later, the people of that island are predominantly Christian who serve now the true and living God. All through the testimony and the witness of the peace child. Well, friends, there is a peace child that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. Then the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of the virgin, to live the life that you and I could not live, to die the death that we deserve, and raise them up to glory so that we can now be seated with them, shoulder to shoulder, with Gentiles and Jews alike in the heavenly kingdom of God. What a beautiful witness and testimony of God's peace, the peace that he can offer, the peace that he can give. Now again, we see again, this is a reference in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, or who were the ones who were far off. If you can go to uh, Acts chapter 2 for a moment. Verse 39 tells us. Notice what the apostle Peter preaching after the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 39. For the promise, this is the promise of eternal life, the promise of a right standing before God, a promise of justification through faith. He says that this promise is for you and your children. Notice who he's talking to, though, in Acts chapter 2, to the Jews who were gathered together in Jerusalem. He says this promise is for you and your children, to the Jewish people. And for all 
who are far off. If you know anything about the festival of Pentecost, the, this is a pilgrimage festival where people were, in, were called and anticipated to come forward into God's city onto Zion in order to celebrate. And so all those who were gathered from amongst the Roman Empire were likely Jewish. However, the promise is not only for them and for their children, but for all those who are far off who are still amongst the nations. That would be mostly you and I. All the nations were at one time far off. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9 that the nations were walking gloom and darkness and a great darkness had come upon the land. But notice the, the, the change in tenor of the prophecy is that there is a great light that has shown. This light brings forward peace through God's peace child in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 where he says that a, a son has been promised. And the Son shall be known as Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Eternal Father. And of the increase of His government, there shall be no end. This is the good news, that this is indeed for those who were near and those who were far off. We were once all far off. Unlike the people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says in verse 7, What great nation is there that has a God so near it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? You see, the Israelites had access to God because they had the confidence, they had the promises of God. But the nations, the Gentiles, were, were, were far off, not having the same assurances and promises, not having the God of Israel, Yahweh, near to them. But now, through Jesus, who is indeed himself Yahweh, God come in human flesh, has brought us near even to the Father. And that's what we see in, verse, in Ephesians chapter 2, now in verse 18. Notice what God's inspired word says. For through him, the him being Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, near and far. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. Isn't it marvelous? Do you not see the Trinitarian outworking of our salvation, of ours being brought near to the one true and triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit? You see, it is through the Son, through God the Son, the second person of the triune God, that we can be brought near and be given access to God through the Spirit of God. And we have access to the holy, true, and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Faith in Jesus grants us access. Once you write this in there, you're following along in the notes. Faith in Jesus grants us access to the Father through the Spirit. Again, there's an emphasis here in the text of the triune God and salvation, how each member grants us access as sons and daughters of the Most High, no longer strangers. You who were once without access, now you have received access. I'm not sure if, uh, if there's anything in your life that could be uh, reminiscent to this scenario. I think of times in which, in 
in high school, for instance, I often felt like an outsider. But you know where I didn't feel like an outsider? When I came to church. When I came amongst the people of God. Different age groups, different races, skin colors. And amongst the people of God, there was this unity and there's this peace that exists even today, even in this church. There's a peace that God gives us. He grants us access. Though we may be outsiders in other ways, we are now the consummate insiders through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we see again in verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I want, you to, I want to talk to you this morning as well about the power of the access that we have. What is the nature of the access that we have through Jesus, by the Spirit, to the Father? And it's a marvelous one. And it's one that you can partake in at any moment, any part of the day. And it's the access that we have, not solely for our salvation, not solely for our redemption, as that's obviously a given in the text, but it's this access that we have to approach God in prayer. That we can approach Him. That He's approachable. Did you know that? Have you received that truth in your life? That God is approachable? That God is good? He's merciful? He loves you? He knows you? He wants to be in relationship with you? And He offers that to you freely today through Jesus Christ. God is, in self, is making himself accessible to his people through Jesus by the spirit that he has put in us to dwell in us. Now, the privilege that's most commonly neglected in the Christian life is prayer. Just yesterday, myself and Pastor uh, Conley were at a uh, reform conference just down here at Morgan Hill. And one of the speakers spoke about the power of prayer and how one of the things that the Puritans did right and one of the reasons why the Puritans saw revival time and time again in their generation was because not that they had some supernatural power or, or something, uh, a, a, a lost knowledge that we don't have or that we've lost, but instead it was their dependence and their humble submission to God in prayer. It's prayer. I'll be honest, that, that talk that that brother gave really convicted me. And as I was preparing for this sermon even, thinking about the power of prayer, how prayer is often the thing that we, we have the most unfettered access to and yet we neglect the most. And I thought for a moment, what if we had unfettered access to the most powerful person in the world? We can just pick up the phone and call them. I was watching a documentary a couple days ago on a political documentary, and uh, this congressperson, I won't name names, but this congressperson picking up the phone and just calling up the president whenever they wanted to. And the president would pick up the call. Pretty amazing. Imagine if we had unfettered access to the most important person, most powerful person in the world. And I thought, what would stop us from taking advantage of that? Well, I thought of two things. First, we, we would not take advantage of that opportunity to have unfettered access to the most powerful person because we do not feel the confidence to approach them. We don't feel the confidence to approach them. 
I was kind of taken aback in this political documentary that I was watching at how nonchalant this congressman was as he would just call the president up just to say a couple words. I was like, that's, that's pretty bold. It's pretty bold of him. If we did not take advantage of that, it's because we probably do not feel the confidence to approach them. Two, the second thing that I came up with is uh, we're ashamed to show our face to this person. Now I speak to you spiritually. What are some of the things that keep us from enjoying, being in, receiving this unfettered access to the Father through Jesus and by the Spirit? I think the reasons would be similar. One, we do not feel confidence. A confidence to approach this awesome, fear-inspiring Father. And also, maybe two, because we're ashamed to show our face. And we often, as humans, because we're still fallen, we still live in this broken world, we, we may feel shame over our sins, which may be great, which may be many. And we feel like our sins, rightfully so, are creating a barrier between us and our God. But friends, part of the good news is that in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the peace that he gives, the peace that he offers, is unfettered access to the Father. You have access. When you sin, you have access. Because if we sin, we have a high priest in heaven who can intercede for our sins. If we fall short, you have access to approach your father, not in a way in which you feel his heavy hand of judgment, but rather his heavy hand of love and mercy. For in Christ, he is very merciful to his children and to his elect. We have access to God in our highs, in our lows, and everything and everywhere in between. We have access. And why, why do we have access? It's not because of anything that you've done. It's not because you're great. It's not because you're so important like this congressman who is super powerful and could just make the phone call. But instead, he, he gives you access because he's called you into his family. I'm friends of a pastor, a good pastor friend of mine from Oklahoma, who his children are in the midst of adopting a child from Africa. And one of the hiccups that they've run into is that they are in a state of limbo with the child. The child is in a detention facility uh, in the, um, uh, some United States airport. And the hangup is that the family uh, is having a hard time proving the history of the child because in this country that the child came from, uh, this person, this child was just abandoned, dropped off, no documents. And this one family in America desperately loves and wants this child to be part of their family. And they are moving heaven and earth to make sure that this blessed, beautiful little girl gets home to be with mom and dad. And brothers and sisters, God has moved mountains, especially Calvary's mountain, in order to bring you near 
to God in order to bring you to the Father. So don't neglect this most powerful tool, this most blessed blessing that we have in Christ, that we can approach him in prayer. Let's not neglect it. Let's not think so lowly or little of prayer, but let's think highly of it. So much so that even in our church life, we don't just uh, want to uh, facilitate prayer Sunday mornings, but we have a facilitation of prayer later in the afternoon. But even then, is that the highlight of our prayer life, of our prayer week? Or should Sunday just be the tip of the iceberg for our prayer life in Jesus? We have great confidence and reason to have confidence. The Word of God says in Hebrews 4 verse 16, Paul says, let us then with confidence draw near. Remember you who were far off? He says you can now have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, it's often in times of need that we tend to isolate ourselves most. We feel the pride and, and we feel too proud maybe to reach out and ask for help. Maybe we're too proud to ask for uh, resources or help or, or, or uh, we feel too prideful in order to even approach and, and, and share where our struggles are and our difficulties are in life. But it's in those times of need that you ought to have the most confidence to approach the throne of grace. Not the throne of judgment, because that is, a Jonah, that is a, in fact a throne of judgment, and it shall be a throne of judgment on that great day. But you and I can appear before that throne, not with the expectation of judgment, but with the expectation of grace. And grace changes everything. It changes the way that we live, function, and can approach God because we have, in fact, through Christ, access in one spirit to the Father above. And the next verse may help us overcome that spiritual malignancy of not praying. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul goes on to say this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't this incredible? If you're following along in the teaching, in Christ we're no longer strangers, or you can put outsiders into that uh, space there. We're no longer strangers, no longer the outsiders, we're no longer the others, but now members of God's house. We're now members. So we can approach then God boldly, no longer as strangers, no longer as foreigners, no longer as outsiders, but now we can draw near to him, not as one cast out, but as one grafted in as members of the same household. That's how we are to approach our Father, like we're members of the same house. Now, often my kids have no shame, uh, right, Nehemiah? <laughs> no shame in coming to me and asking me for things. 
And I've heard some weird requests over the years. Some strange requests. Uh, I won't put them in the spot, but <laughs> some requests I'd be like, really? You're going to ask for that? But that's the boldness of a child to his father. And that's the boldness I want all of us to have with our father. That though it may sound silly, though it may sound weird, though it may sound far out or, 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 or far-fetched, I, I want you to have that confidence to go to Abba, Father, and approach him because he's been made approachable in Jesus Christ. And so don't, don't fear him as a stranger or an alien or an outsider, but now you are a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the same household of God. Brothers and sisters, what confidence we ought to have to appear, to come before the throne of mercy, the throne of grace. Again, no longer does the, does the Lord look past the nations of the earth, but now he brings them forward into his divine economy. I want you, if you can, turn to Isaiah chapter 2. What a glorious prophecy lies therein. In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet Isaiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He sees days which are to come, days which are glorious, days which I will say to you are the days in which we are living in. Verse 2, he says of Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah saw that there would be days, latter days, in which the mountain of the house of the Lord would be firmly established above all the nations and indeed that all the nations would be streaming to it. Brothers and sisters, we have come to heavenly Mount Zion, to heavenly Jerusalem, and amongst myriads of angels. We are now in the midst of the congregation, the household, the people of God. And the nations are indeed flowing into that great mountain of Zion, saying, come, let us go. Let us worship God. Let us worship the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we live in such blessed times that the nations are indeed flowing to God's mountain. They are indeed flowing into the gospel of Jesus Christ, who brings both Jew and Gentiles near through Jesus. No longer strangers, no longer outsiders. We're now members of the household of God. The nations are indeed streaming to the mountain of God. Aren't these days of great joy that all nations can come bow before the Father through the Messiah, Jesus? And there's a point here. God is building something. Nations are flowing to it. God is, is making an edifice for himself. And we see in verse in Ephesians 2, our main text 
this morning. Paul in verse 19 at the end of it, he alludes that we're members of the household of God, a house. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. God is building something. The church, that's what God's building. He's building you and me through Christ. Now what is the church? The church is God's people of all ages, of all nations, Jew and Gentile, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. They have become this new, one new people. The covenant promises that were for the Jewish people now belong not only to them, but to us who believe in Christ. It is ours. It is our possession now. No longer outsiders, but now God is building a one, as he says in Ephesians 2, God is making one new man through the two. And so the church is built on the foundation. There's a rock-solid foundation that the church is built on. And it's of the apostles and the prophets. I want you to write that in there. Verse 20 again says, Built on the foundation of the apostles, that's the twelve, and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the foundation is laid. This is one of the reasons in Scripture why it is the conviction of many in this church that we no longer, there's no office of apostle that is needed in our day. Why? Because the foundation's been set. We don't need new apostles to come and lay other foundations lest the good foundation that was laid be laid waste. Indeed, we have one phenomenal, powerful, great foundation that he that God has laid through his apostles through his prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3:11 no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ we're in no need to build other foundations and everyone who tries to attempt to build another foundation which we see often in religious history and movements. We see that, for instance, in the restorationist movements of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church. We see that in the restorationist movement of Jehovah Witnesses, Christadelphians, others who all claim to be laying the new foundation, the new cornerstone for God's people. And in reality, there is no need for them to come and restore because Jesus Christ has already restored and been himself the chief cornerstone of his people. No need to lay any other foundation. Jesus Christ is indeed himself the chief cornerstone and the foundation of his people. Which is why in Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, we have this confession of faith where Simon Peter says, You are the Christ, speaking to Jesus, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is building something. And he's building something on the solid rock. Now what's the rock? If you come from a Roman Catholic background, 
You know that the Roman Catholic Church says that Jesus was talking to Peter, that Peter was the rock that was to be uh, the foundation of the church. As Protestants, we have a little bit of a different view, don't we? Our view being the confession is really key to this. The confession that we see in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What's the foundation? Is it a man? Is it Peter? No, it's the truth, the reality, the foundation that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and that by means of this proclamation, Jesus can say to Peter, who in in the Greek, the word Peter means little rock, he says, you little rock, you've confessed this great truth, but on this rock, the rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's building something. He's building something marvelous, so powerful, with such sure a foundation that even the gates of hell can prevail against it. What a solid rock, what a solid foundation we have, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation of his people. In Ephesians chapter 2, closing our time in Ephesians 2 this morning, Verse 21 says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that last bullet point, Christ or the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. But now God is building something new. He's building something magnificent. And we see in the last bullet point, we are growing into a holy what? Temple. A holy temple. That's what God is creating. That is what God is erecting. That is what God is bringing forward into this world on this Mount Zion. It's this new and living temple. Can I tell you this as well? To dispel a, 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 a false view, a false doctrine that's very common amongst evangelicals even today. This idea that there will be a third temple built in Jerusalem where presumably they claim it will be God's temple. Where there will be a reinstitution of sacrifices, a reinstitution of the shadows and the things that Christ abolished. Even if such thing were to be erected, it would be a complete uh, blasphemy and an affront to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In fact, there is no need for a third temple in Jerusalem because there's already a temple that God is erecting not with human hands but with his own hands. And that temple is the temple of his people, you and I in Christ Jesus. You are the temple of the living God. Why? It says in verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place. The idea of the temple in the old covenant, the idea of the temple, even the the, the tabernacle in the wilderness was for God to come and dwell amongst his people, to commune with his people. And God is indeed communing with us. He is dwelling in us through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. 
If you be in Christ this morning, you are indeed part of that beautiful edifice that God is creating himself. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 6, the scripture says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. This is why we ought to have the confidence to approach our great God and Father. It's because... No longer do we have to go outside to foreign temples, temples built with human hands in order to approach the magnificent God of creation, but instead we can now approach him because we ourselves are that dwelling place of God through the Spirit. Isn't that good news? Isn't this marvelous? That God is indeed growing and making a holy temple as God's dwelling place by the Spirit of God? This is indeed marvelous news. Verse 21 again says in Ephesians 2, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are being built up as a dwelling place for the Most High God. Let's not forget who we are in Jesus. Let us not forget, lest we shrink back and forget to engage our most high heavenly Father in prayer, lest we forget to render unto him that which is rightfully due to his name. Rather, we remember and we recall the truth and we stand on the solid rock of Christ and we say we are indeed his people and we have become his dwelling place. And God has a marvelous future ahead for all of his people. The last scripture I want to share with us this morning is in Revelation chapter 21. I love the book of Revelation. Let's not fear it. But instead the scripture says, Blessed is he who reads the words of these prophecies and look at the blessed hope that we can all look forward to. In Revelation chapter 21, 3 and 4, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God is restoring his dwelling place amongst man through Jesus Christ in the church. God is making a new thing, a beautiful edifice for his own glory. And it says in verse 9 and 10 of Revelation chapter 21, he says, I saw, in the, it says, I, I come, I will show you the wife, the bride of the lamb. And he says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain, Isaiah 2, the high mountain that we saw, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. New Jerusalem 
will descend from heaven and will dwell here on the earth. There will be a new heavens, a new earth. God's dwelling place will be with man. But in that great day, will there be a third temple built with human hands? Notice what verse 22 says of that same chapter. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine it, for the glory of God give its light, and its lamp it is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Church, what a future. What a glorious future lies ahead for you and I. For we are that temple of God, joined to Jesus Christ, joined to God the Father by the one Spirit of the living God who now dwells in you. And you yourself are that dwelling place for God. May you live in that. May you know that. And you've not made that dis- if you've not come to that realization, if you've not come to that confession of faith, that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. What you need to know today is that you are a sinner. What you need to know today is there's only one way to salvation, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other name given among men by which we can be saved but the name of Jesus, who lived for you, died for you, and was raised again for you, and who sits at the right hand of majesty interceding for you. Receive him by faith, repenting of your sins, and the Bible says God will grant you the gift of everlasting life. Scripture puts it this way, you will pass from death to life. What a marvelous thing it is to know Jesus. And if you know Jesus this morning, may you walk in growing confidence to know that you are indeed the temple of the living God who dwells in you by the Spirit. So therefore, approach the throne of grace with all boldness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our great high priest in heaven who became man, who dwelt among us, who lived a holy, blameless, perfect life, Lord Jesus, you are perfect in every way, without sin, and that you would come and die for us. Words fail. There's no words that can adequately describe your infinite wisdom and love that you've expressed, O blessed Savior. Help us to grow and holiness. Forgive us of our sins, O Lord. Help us not to neglect you and your word or in the fellowship of the saints or in the private uh, life of our prayers. Lord, we, we fall so short. But thanks be to you that you are the 
righteous advocate who brings us near to the Father. And you have indeed given us and sent to us the blessed Spirit to dwell in us, to be the dwelling place of God so that when we feel far, we are actually near. God, you are so marvelous. Help us to see these truths in Scripture, to live by them, to breathe them, that they become the very fabric of our lives, that we know not anything else but the truth of who you are and what you've done for us as sinners. That you've changed our state from children of wrath to children of God. Oh, blessed Savior, to you belongs all the glory, the wealth, wisdom, knowledge, and power. For you were slain and you are worthy. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.